seems like uh, what I've got to say, <laughs> say now is inappropriate, because this morning's uh, sermon is on hell. <clears throat> and I was going to give it to you. But now what can I say? Actually, that is what it's about, and uh, you know that is a, uh, a sobering topic. One uh, that a lot of people become very angry, even by the uh, fact that we believe in such a place. It uh, um, seems to them a contradiction of a loving God that, that He would allow such a place to exist. But the fact is that the majority of our teaching on hell comes from the mouth of our loving Lord, Jesus Christ Himself. Uh, he is the embodiment of love. There is no one more tender, understanding, loving, compassionate than He. Yet He says more about hell than anyone in Scripture. So if uh, our Lord had that much to say about it, we cannot neglect the topic. That's why I love <clears throat> the book of Luke, studying through it. Because the book of Luke is full of our Lord's teaching. And, and as we study the book, we're forced to look at what Jesus says. And what Jesus says always causes us to think, and to think deeply. So this morning, what I would like to do so I would look, like to look at the parable that Jesus gives us in Luke 16. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and look and see the point that Jesus is making in that context. And then if we have any more time left to say a couple of, of things just about hell and what it really is. Before uh, we even start with the parable, however, I want to say that often people's reaction to the very idea of hell is because of our lovelessness. Christians have at times uh, spoken and acted like they were glad people were going to hell. Like it's it somehow we communicate some kind of, of perverse pride as we talk about hell. And we see none of this in Jesus' attitude. So we must expunge any of that out of our attitude, out of our hearts, as well, so it's my hope that our discussion this morning will open our hearts, will will stir our compassion rather than stir our pride, our kind of smug satisfaction. Ran into a, a quote just this last week. A uh, minister was beginning a sermon on hell, and he said, "The majority of people in this world are going to hell, and you people don't give a damn." And he waited for a few seconds. And he said, and the thing that breaks my heart is that more of you are probably upset that I just said damn than you are about all those people going to hell. And I think he's probably right. You know, our view of righteousness can become so confused. Anyway, let's get into the uh, parable. Turn with me to Luke 16, verse 19. Now remember, this is a parable, a story that Jesus is telling to drive home the points that He has just made about, uh, about our choices with how we use our money. Two weeks ago, uh, Jackson talked with you about this. And he, he pointed out that, that how we use money is a window to our heart, showing what our true priorities are, showing our, our true choices. Money is given to us to love others, to love God, not to love it. 
That's God's design. But unfortunately, all too often, we use money to insulate ourselves from God and from others. That uh, is demonstrated by the choices we make. And Jesus is, is coming straight at this problem as he's dealing with the Pharisees who loved money. There is no snare of the devil more obvious in American society than the love for money. The love for ease and escape from difficulty. Love for money and love for for escape from difficulty, love for ease, is uh, what causes us to ignore God's Word, to try to find our way around it. We sacrifice relationships on its altar. In fact, Jesus pointed out there in the end of that last section that the, the prevalence of divorce in a society is clear evidence of the love for money, love for ease, uh, love for escape from pain or difficulty. Anyway, so to drive home the point, Jesus makes up a story. Since this is a parable, we have to be a little bit careful here not to, to treat it as if it was a detailed description of the afterlife. Go too far with the details. But this story does tell us some very important information about the afterlife. Let's just walk through the story together. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. The dogs came and licked his sores. We're told there was a rich man. Traditionally, this guy's known as Dives. That's the name that, that he's been given. Dives is simply the Latin for rich man. But I think people thought since Lazarus had a name, the rich man ought to have a name. So they call him Dives. But Lazarus' name is significant. It is the Greek form of Eleazar. God is my help. Because this man had no resource other than God. And we're told that uh, Dives lived in luxury. He wore $2,000 Armani suits. He ate lobster and caviar every day. Now, as a Jew, he probably didn't eat lobster. It wouldn't have been kosher, but that's the, the modern equivalent. He ate the most expensive and rich foods every day. The text emphasizes every day. This wasn't just at a, at a party, at a celebration. This was his normal, opulent, self-indulgent lifestyle. And Lazarus is described as a beggar. Jesus uses this picture intentionally. He, Lazarus was a, a beggar, a, a street person, a homeless. Realize the prejudice against someone that poor in that society is probably somewhat like it is today. In our current political climate, someone that poor is considered suspect. Uh, there must be something morally wrong with them. They're shiftless, perhaps lazy. In Jesus' day, there was a slightly different twist on it. They looked at somebody like that and said, they must have done something wrong. There must be something morally wrong with them because look what God has done to them. Look how God is treating them. Well, somebody like Dives, who is so wealthy, must be doing it right because look how God has blessed them. You see, that equation was just as wrong then as it is now. To equate wealth with virtue. 
Jesus' words in back in verse 15 speak to this. He says, what is highly valued among men is of no account in God's sight. Jesus looks at the heart. We're going to see that as we go through. Not at, at the circumstance, not at the outside. It's the heart that matters. Jesus has to attack their prejudice, and in the process, he attacks our prejudice as well. Anyway, Lazarus is destitute. He's covered with sores. He is dirty. He's unkempt. The only ones showing him any tenderness at all are the dogs who come and lick his sores. And and he's longing to eat what gets thrown away from Dive's table. Now, in those days, um, you ate with your fingers. And, And the wealthy would clean their hands by taking good edible bread, wipe their hands on the bread, and just throw that away. See, it would have cost Dives nothing to give this to Lazarus, who he saw sitting at his gate every day. This was garbage to him. You know, maybe he gave it to his dogs instead. But what Jesus has done here is painted for us a a picture in in, in the, the most dramatic contrast. Here is the absolutely rich and the absolutely poor. The the, the top of the social ladder and the very bottom of the ladder. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. We're told that when the time came, as it does for everyone, rich, poor, everyone dies. And Lazarus died and the angels came and took him to Abraham's side. Abraham's side, or as you may have heard it referred to in the old King James, the bosom of Abraham. It is a, is a common um, word picture, a common way of referring to heaven. See, the Old Testament uh, taught about heaven and hell, but it never taught in real clear, um, detailed terms, you know, very literal terms. They didn't have a lot of teaching on heaven and hell. But they knew that since God loved Abraham, since God had called Abraham, since God had eternal covenants with Abraham, that wherever Abraham was, that was heaven. And so the bosom of Abraham became idiomatic for heaven. It carried with it a a feeling of of rest in in security in, in Abraham's arms, rest from all of the struggles of life. It carried with it a, a feeling of connection, of community. Being embraced by Abraham, there with him. And Jesus picks up on this this word picture to drive his point. Now, I want to be very careful here, because this is not a literal description of heaven. As if everyone goes to Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side, any more than it's a literal picture of heaven that Peter is standing at the gate deciding who gets in. See, the fact is, that even Abraham won't receive his, his glorified, resurrected body till after our Lord comes again. So this couldn't possibly be a literal description. But don't make the mistake of thinking because it's a picture that it's not real, that, that, that it doesn't communicate reality. Jesus uses the picture 
to communicate reality. There is the reality of heaven being a place of comfort, of rest, of reunion, of community, of connection, of love. And there's reality on the other side of hell being a a place of pain and torment, uh, of terror. Again, the fact that the language is symbolic takes nothing away for the comfort or the peace in hell or in heaven, nor of the pain and torment of hell. In fact, the picture is a mere suggestion of the greater reality, the stronger experience. In each case, the the picture gives us a glimpse. In the case of heaven, if the picture brings comfort and peace, how much more will the reality? In the case of hell, if the pictures are terrible, how much more terrible will the reality be? So anyway, Lazarus died. He was taken to Abraham's bosom. And then we're told that Dives also died and was buried. He probably had this huge, elaborate funeral with all of these dignitaries making up nice things to say about him. Reminds me of a story that David Roper has told you about the two very wealthy, heartless, ruthless brothers. One of them dies and the other brother goes to the the preacher who's going to be uh, doing the uh, funeral. And he says, listen, tomorrow at the funeral, I want you to call my brother a saint. The minister kind of hymns and haws and says, I'm not sure I can do that. So the brother says, listen, you figure out a way and you can keep this $10,000. And he drops an envelope of money on the desk. And the preacher says, well, I'll think about it. I'll see what I can do. Next day at the funeral, the preacher's giving his sermon. He comes to the point, he says... Now, we all know what a self-centered, self-absorbed scoundrel this man was. But next to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) Most of you have heard that, but I still like it. (laughs) Anyway, while the funeral was going on for dives in heaven, the real man, his, his consciousness was in hell. And there the roles were reversed. You know, in this life, he asked no one for anything. He bought what he wanted. He was independent. He was powerful. Now, he's the beggar. He's begging Abraham just for a a drop of water. He desperately wants a drop of water to cool his parched and burning tongue. As H.A. Ironsides observed, it was a spiritual thirst, a thirst which he never would have known if he had availed himself of the offer to drink of the living water. Again, Dives is in torment and in pain. He begs Abraham to send Lazarus with just a drop of water, the the most basic and inexpensive of all of his needs when he was on earth. He now doesn't have. Verse 25, But Abraham replied, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Abraham speaks very gently to Dives. He calls him child, uses an endearing term for child. He isn't harsh, he isn't rebuking, he isn't um, happy with Dives' fate. Jesus puts an almost tender 
sadness in, in Abraham's voice as he reminds Dives of the decisions, the choices that he has made, and that those choices are now fixed forever. You see, Dives is someone in this context who did not do what Jesus says to do. Back in, in, in verse 9, using earthly wealth for heavenly good. Dives is not somebody, look at verse 9, Dives is not someone who used earthly wealth to gain friends for himself, so that when it is gone, he will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You see, Dives made his choice. He chose to use wealth to try to insulate himself from God and from others, from Lazarus. To, to insulate himself from even noticing Lazarus' need and his pain and his hurt. He chose to use his wealth to isolate himself. And, and Abraham gently reminds him of this. No one is doing this to him. He chose it. When he did that, God, at the end of his life, gave him his choice. Gave him what he wanted himself, alone, away from God and away from Lazarus. Lazarus, on the other hand, chose to bless God, even in the midst of his, his horrible circumstances. Now, we don't have any dialogue with Lazarus, so this has to be assumed, but we don't see any complaining, any uh, bitterness, any cursing God for his pain, even though that pain was extreme. But you see, this is Lazarus's choice. He chose to gather for himself treasures in heaven. Each of these men is getting their choice, what they had chosen. As an aside, and even though it kind of begs the whole parable, I wonder who fixed the chasm between heaven and hell. Was it God or was it Dive's hard heart? C.S. Lewis always used to say that hell is locked from the inside. There's no need for locks on the outside. When someone has chosen to be away from God, to be separated from God, who doesn't want God in their lives, they, uh, they stay away. And God just merely gives them what they ask for, what they want. Now, don't be uh, confused about what Abraham is suggesting here, or what Jesus is suggesting through this parable. It's not saying that if you have money, what you need to do is to buy your salvation by giving to the poor. During the Reformation times, they used to have a saying, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That was... Uh, probably the advice of the first church consultant who was using a church building fundraiser. It was a, a transparent attempt by the religious leaders to exploit the rich and give them false hope. And also don't be confused that this is some kind of karma, that if you're happy or rich in this life, you're going to be miserable in the next life. So the way to be happy in the next life is to be as miserable as possible in this life. There's actually a, a third century uh, heretical cult that believed this, the Ebionites. They taught that the key to bliss in the afterlife was to be miserable in this life. So they would starve themselves and, and, and abuse themselves to pay for, to buy their own salvation. 
You see, the issue is not what you have or don't have. Realize that, that Abraham himself was extremely wealthy in this life. You see, the issue is that what you do, how you handle wealth or the lack of it, is a window to your soul showing your choices, showing where your heart really is. See, that's the point that Jesus is making. And he drives this point home with the rest of the story. Verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, this is the first uh, concern we see in dives for anyone other than himself. Even when he ends up in hell, he doesn't say, God, I am sorry. I am so sorry for the way I treated you. I am sorry for the way I took your word so lightly. I took your blessings so selfishly and so pridefully. No, his first response is just, I have needs. Give to me. His concern is with, is with his own situation. But here at least we, we see a little concern for his brother's. But the point that Jesus is making in the context of the parable, the reason Jesus puts this on there, is to show that there is no excuse. When he talks about Moses and the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament Scripture. That's how they referred to the Bible in those days. And basically what Jesus is saying is, listen, you've got all the information you need. It's written right there in black and white. Your brothers don't need more information. It's not an issue of information. It's an issue of choices. And they have choices to make, just like you did. So they're without excuse. They have no one to blame but themselves. More information wouldn't do them any good. It's their own choice that they need to be concerned with. Well, all along in Jesus' ministry, the, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, had been asking him for a sign. All along, Jesus had been saying things and doing things that would be enough evidence for anyone whose heart was open. But Jesus said, no, you're not going to get any more signs other than one, my own resurrection. You see, the, the sign that Dives is asking for will come, but it won't be enough. People, we have that sign. Someone has come back from the grave to tell us. Jesus Himself came back from the grave. And for most people, it isn't enough. It doesn't lead to faith. It doesn't move people to, to look deeply and honestly at God's Word. It doesn't move them to faith, to put their trust in Jesus Christ. Again, it isn't a matter of information. The information is there. It is a matter of choices. And the real power of this parable is that your choices matter. They matter for eternity. You have real choice. And Jesus is telling us in this context to look at the choices that you're making. To see if your heart is really after God. 
If you really love God or you love money or ease or comfort or freedom from difficulty. He says, look at the decisions you are making. Be honest. Again, is your heart really after God? To submit to Him, to obey Him. Are you willing to suffer <coughs> Excuse me, in the process of following Him? Or will you do whatever you have to do to get out of pain, to get out of difficulty? Will you sell your soul to your, your job just to gain things? Will, will you incur enslaving debt for pleasure, recreation? Will you walk out on your marriage rather than doing the painful, hard work of honest processing? Will you have affairs rather than dealing with your sexual frustration? Will you avoid commitment rather than involving yourself in real ministry to others? You see, your choices reveal where you are. Now, the answer again is not to give all your money away. One of the sub-points of this parable is that your physical circumstance is, does not determine your eternal happiness. See, your response to God does. And that response to God is in the midst of whatever circumstance you're in. Jesus is intentionally making a huge contrast between a rich person and a poor person for the sake of, of driving this home. But it could have been reversed See, Dives could have used his wealth to serve God, just like Abraham did. And Lazarus could have become embittered and, and unbelieving in his poverty. Because the issue isn't how much you have or don't have. The issue is, is your response to God. The choices you make in the midst of your circumstances, no matter what they are, whether they're with wealth or with poverty, whether they're sickness and health, whether they're in a in a delightful marriage or one that you struggle. The choices you make reveal the nature of your relationship with God. This is a call to let God be your God. To really submit to Him. To believe Him. To give Him all that you are. All that you have. You cannot serve two masters. Now to do justice to this parable... The, uh, it has to be emphasized that there are eternal consequences to the choices you're making every day right now. And God doesn't tell us this to bully us or to threaten us. This is simply fair and honest warning. Your choices really do matter. They really are the window to your heart, showing where your heart is. Look honestly. Hell is a terrible place. The only way to avoid it is to come to God admitting that, that, that you have and you do make choices that show your disregard for Him. Come to Him honestly and humbly. And the only way you can do that is through His Son, Jesus Christ, and His death on the cross, forgiving our sins, enabling us to come to the Father and, and, and to make our confession to Him and to let Him teach us what life is all about. Let Him put His life in us. That's the way. That's the bottom line. Now let me say a few things about hell. 
As I said before, the language of hell is highly symbolic. But again, symbolic does not mean unreal. The symbolism communicates reality. Jesus refers to hell as the hell of fire. That it would be better to cut off a hand or gouge out an eye than to end up there. He also refers to it as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, it's a place where the pain and the suffering, the hurt, the frustration never stops. He refers to it as the outer darkness. That's one of his most common references. The outer darkness. The place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a horrible place. So again, the question arises, how could a loving God create such a place? Well, let me tell you, He hasn't. People have. God gives us choice. He gives us real, legitimate, effective choice. We can choose to come to Him, let Him save us. We can come to Him, let Him show us what reality is about, how He created it. We can come to Him, give our lives to Him, give Him His proper place on the throne of our lives. Or we can reject Him, either blatantly by being an atheist or a a, a pagan, or less honestly, by claiming to be a follower of His, yet never really trusting Him to forgive our sins never really trusting Him with our lives, giving ourselves completely to Him. Either way, we stay on the throne of our lives and we keep Him in the role of our servant. And and when He doesn't play that role, we become angry with Him and we push Him away. The bottom line is either God is on the throne of your life as your master or you are on the throne. And the choice is yours. God, who is love, will not force himself on anyone. He really does let you choose. And this leads to to C.S. Lewis's simple definition, definition of heaven and hell. Heaven is where we say to God, thy will be done. And hell is where God says to us, thy will be done. You see, heaven is where we say to God, Thy will be done. We submit ourselves to that will and we discover what a generous, loving will that is. We enjoy God's presence. We enjoy His delight in giving us good things. He is the wonderful Creator who created beauty and goodness and we experience that and He lavishes that upon us. That's what heaven is. We begin to experience life as He intended it to be. Now, at first, we begin to experience that on the inside, here on this earth, in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits. We begin to experience heaven now on the inside, God's presence now on the inside. But there will come a time eventually, either when we die or our Lord comes again, when we will experience the new heavens and the new earth, where what's on the outside is also all that our loving Creator designed it to be. Your will be done. And we are left with the terrible disquiet of our own souls, with the, with the 
inane, petty insistence that reality is as we say it is, rather than as God created it to be. You see, we insist that reality is what we want it to be. And God simply says the truth, that it is not. God is the truth. And in our demand that reality be what we want it to be, we resent the truth. We resent Him. We resent His Word. We resent anyone who tells us the truth. And ultimately, we resent His very presence because His very presence confirms that we are wrong. And we hate Him for it. And so we push Him away. That is hell. It's a choice between the light of His presence and the darkness of our own will. Let me uh, read to you. Listen to John 3, starting with a very familiar verse. Just listen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes on Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but so the world could be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light. Men loved darkness. God offers light. People choose darkness. People choose to be alone. People choose the outer darkness. Peter, in Second Peter calls it the nether gloom of darkness. Jude calls it the darkness. Paul calls it the everlasting destruction, being shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of His power. See, this is hell. God willfully sends no one there. People willfully choose it. See, God... In His love imposes Himself on no one. But the absence of His presence is hell. Now what about the, uh, uh, the fire and the, the worm and the, the, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth? Because fire is the most common uh, imagery used of hell in the Scripture. But I think it's a descriptive term. For them, fire, when you get burned, it was the most relentless, terrible, constant unrelenting pain that they could imagine. And they use that as a picture to the constant pain of hell. The, the worm is a picture of something that's just eating you out from the inside. The, the weeping is in frustration and despair. The gnashing of teeth is in anger and rebellion. We have all seen tiny glimpses of this. Look at a two-year-old, a stubborn, rebellious little two-year-old who would rather be spanked and sent to his room and miss playing, miss his dinner than to say he was sorry and to, to, to be friends. Look at his face. It's miserable. But he's not going to give it up even at the cost of misery. That's a tiny glimpse of what hell is. 
We've all tasted it ourselves. When we are acting selfishly, self-centered, when we are sinning, when we are insisting that our interpretation of, of reality is right and everyone around us is wrong, when we are on the throne, we are miserable. There is something gnawing at our souls. The more miserable we get, the meaner we get, the nastier we get. We try to blame it on our wives, our kids, our parents, on God, on society, on anyone. But that grungy, terrible feeling is still there. And we choose it. The longer we indulge it, the harder it is to escape. Until with time there comes a point where though we chose it, it starts to feel like we can't not choose it. We're... we're controlled by it. It is a restless, relentless, aching emptiness that causes us to push everyone away around us, to, to, to be alone, to let no one in. Yeah, we live in the presence of God. We have light all around us. We have His Word. We have His Spirit calling to us. We have uh, people who know Him, we are surrounded by the light. Where we cut off completely from the light, from God's presence, from all goodness, that aching, uh, empty selfishness would become all-consuming. It is the internal misery of sin and selfishness that is the fire that never stops burning, the worm that doesn't stop eating. In The Great Divorce, Lewis describes hell as a place where everyone is getting as far away from each other as they can. You see, sin is the attempt to convince ourselves that our self-created virtual reality is the true reality. And we use whatever influence we have to get everyone around us to buy into our version of reality. If we have power as a, as a husband, as a wife, as a father, mother, as a boss, with wealth, whatever power we have, we use to try to impose our reality on others. And those who will go along with it, we like. Those who speak or act in a way that contradicts it, we reject. The reality is there comes a point when any autonomous human being, even with the most basic of needs, those needs impose themselves on our reality and it frustrates us and we have to reject them. In Lewis's story, everyone starts out together, but with enough time they end up rejecting each other. They start out in agreement and, and, and groups of them who have the same view, but eventually, over time, they end up alone, getting farther and farther, infinitely alone. Heaven is a community. Heaven is union with God and with others. Hell is a hell of our own making. It is absolute isolation. It is left alone with nothing but our minds and our resentment of those that we have rejected. Dostoevsky said, what is hell? I maintain it is the suffering of being unable to love. Right now, you have the seeds of hell in you. It's that self-centeredness. It's that selfishness. That insistence on your version of reality. That resentment of other people and the imposition of their needs on your life. 
And those seeds will grow into a greater and greater hell. Unless you turn to the gardener who, will, who can rip them out by their roots. Left unchecked, those seeds will grow into the real hell for eternity. Now there is a way out. The most merciful, generous thing that God could do would be to wipe out our sins. To, to give us a, a fresh start, a new start, to give us a thousand new starts every day, every time that we sin and do something deserving of Him rejecting us and sending us out of His presence, to forgive it, to wipe it out, to give us a new start so that we can escape that hell that we create. Well, that's exactly what He's done in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to forgive our sins, to give us those new starts, to take away the penalty of our sin so that we can come to the Father. We can come and have Him show us what reality really is. We can come and have Him put His life in us that uproots and displaces the seeds of hell in our flesh. But the one thing God's love constrains Him not to do is to impose Himself on anyone. He leaves you an honest choice. He will not force Himself on anyone. And when a man or a woman says to God, either blatantly or through their choices, says to God, leave me alone, there will come a point when this life is over, where the terrible, terrifying fact is God will grant that prayer. May that never be true of you. It is so foolish. It is so perverse. It is so unnecessary. But it is your choice to make. May God give you the faith to trust Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have died on the cross so that we don't have to experience hell, a growing agony inside of us, that we can repent and be freed repeatedly, constantly, that we have constant access to you, to the Father. We praise you. I pray for each person here those that know you, that they would recognize those seeds of hell and let you root them out before they become miserable. For those who don't know you, that they would accept your work on the cross. Come, let you show them reality so that they're not constantly beating their head against a wall and rejecting people who frustrate their sense of reality. Lord, uh, we need you, your salvation. We want you on the throne of our lives. I pray, thank you that you have warned us and that you've given us opportunity to escape the misery of hell. I pray this in your name. Amen.